Hello and welcome to Blowing Cartridges, the gaming podcast where we dive into the issues surrounding gaming culture and the games themselves. I'm Brendan Tam and joining me as always is my good friend and co-host, Zach Clark. So Zach, if you were off on an adventure in the Mushroom Kingdom, what companion would you take with you and why? Ooh, that's a good question. Of all the species or creatures that would probably be the best to take, I think I would go with a... Hmm, I think I'd go with a fly guy, like the flying shy guys, because uh, I just feel like they have good capacity to carry things, so if I needed to get around, they could fly me around. They're also just quite cute in a scary way. So they could both scare their, my enemies, but also I would find it adorable. So that's what I'm going to go with. <laughs> what about you, Brendan? <laughs> a great choice. Oh, I, I think I'd go with a, a retired and uh, rusted out uh, Bomb Admiral. I think that, that, that's always my favourite uh, companion. Ah, uh, yes, no. And luckily you've got to sort of simulate that in at least one one video game, um, being Paper Mario the Thousand Year Door with uh, good old Admiral Bobbery. Yes, and uh, before we um, enter into spoilers on the topic today, uh, it is also sort of a theme they touch upon in the most recent Paper Mario game as well. Yeah. They, yeah. they like tying bomb-ombs in the ocean together for some bizarre reason. Yeah, don't know. I guess because cannons, that's my guess. Ships and cannons have bombs, but cannonballs kind of like bombs. <laughs> Well, I think you're right, considering one of the set piece moments in the game we're about to discuss at the very end, that that's what they go for. Mm. But uh, why don't you uh, tell the audience exactly what it is we're going to be talking about, given we've hinted about it twice now. <laughs> yes, yeah, so uh, ladies and gentlemen in the audience, we're finally going to slay the dragon, because I think ever since the first episode of Blowing Cartridges back in 2020, July, when we launched the podcast in the height of the first lockdown in Victoria, Australia, uh, we've always been referencing a particular game in this podcast, and that game has always been Paper Mario Origami King. First, we talked about it when it was just about to release, and we were discussing it in the context of uh, the series as a whole, and some of the conversations that were going on pro and con the game, and what it represented in the series itself, which it's a series that has a lot of fans, particularly among the vocal Nintendo crowd, and then ever since it released, we'd occasionally reference it here and there, and I think at one point there was sort of an unbroken streak where we went nearly over 10 episodes in a row where we sneak in a reference of the game, and so Zach and I have been talking about doing the episode based on the game, and the only thing that was holding us up was the fact that I had actually not finished the game, I was sort of, I was about nearly halfway through, and I ended up playing something else and I never went back to it. But I have returned from the desert. I, I bring gifts. I have completed Paper Mario the Origami King. So I am now ready to discuss this game. Yeah, no, and I'm pretty excited. I mean, I finished it around when it came out. I don't know how long it took me in the end. Um, so I'll have to say to listeners, apologies if there are like names of things I forget because it's just been a been a while. But yeah, very excited to discuss because you would think a Mario spin-off series and spin-off game should be pretty like milk toast, pretty uneventful, not a lot to discuss. But Paper Mario as a series 
and then as a result this game has a lot of a lot of baggage a lot of stuff to deal with really and a lot of expectations formed by the prior games uh that went into this particular entry that made it very fascinating uh and i think before we delve into the actual origami king itself that game we we just want to give set a bit of context for any of you that have maybe never really looked at this series beyond i don't know seeing it on the shelf at eb games or something like that i know brendan do you want to start with a history lesson or do you want me to you know do my my spiel (laughs) i'll jump in and uh, i think i'll i'll start and you probably can finish it oh yeah sounds good we'll we'll go with the flow and see how it goes but i think it really goes back to 1996 when in the dying days of the super nintendo that square developed a nintendo released super mario rpg which was a the first spin-off mario game that tried to well was an rpg effectively it was a jrpg it was very much like a square final fantasy game with with a mario facade over it and interactive battle system where button imports directly impacted the gameplay and impacted your success in the gameplay and that was a very well regarded and well received game we actually never got it in australia or in the power regions of australia europe new zealand and i guess the often the forgotten countries when it came to the the super nintendo and even 64 days we did not get the game until i think the virtual console on the Wii in the late 2000s but that was really what started the mario rpg subgenre off and it was at that point it sort of split because square no longer collaborated with nintendo they went off and developed games and had them published on the sony playstation one so nintendo i think i haven't really read any interviews or the like that really shine a light on it too much but i think at that point nintendo saw that they were on a winning formula so they went in two directions effectively i'll start with what's not really relevant and then we can go on the paper mario so they did start paper mario series and the first entry was on the nintendo 64 developed by intelligent systems which is the fire emblem developer but also just after that they also i think kind of headhunted or they fell upon a breakaway studio of x square developers who a lot of them worked on super um super mario rpg and they went and developed the mario and luigi series which was a very similar game to super mario rpg and in some regards similar to paper mario in gameplay wise aesthetics is very different and that series had quite the run on the gba ds and 3ds before the developer alpha dream went defunct and went bankrupt and closed down I think that was 2020 or 2021. 2020, actually, they closed down. Mm. And we haven't really heard a peak from that subgenre since. So that might have ended. We don't know. But that's a story for another podcast, I'm sure. But going back to Paper Mario. So we had the first Paper Mario game on the 64. And that's what introduced us to what a lot of people argue is the Paper Mario formula. So do you want to take it off from here, Zach? What is that formula and why do you think it was so popular? Yeah, no, happy to. So where Super Mario RPG was basically like a standard RPG with um with uh, building a party, you know, you had Mario and then they got, you know, Gino and oh, I'm 
Mallow and Peach and Bowser. Um, and then added in, obviously, the probably the thing that became the staple of all three RPG brands in the Mario universe, the uh, sort of action sort of commands during the battles where you could press A or B to, to time a dodge or get extra damage in when doing an attack. Uh, Paper Mario continued that forward, except rather than having a you know, sort of three-person party that you sub people in and out of. Uh, you played as Mario the whole way through, and you would get along the way partners, which were these like little, you know, usually not always, but usually a, a Mario enemy, but with a bit more character to them. So in Paper Mario, the original, your first sort of partner in me was a little Goomba boy with a hat, um, who you you sort of meet early on, and he follows you. Then you get like a, a green boo with a bow in her hair and like a a blue uh, koopa trooper and they all have names and backstories and you sort of go through each chapter of the game you'll get a new character who joins your party and um they sort of can stand behind mario and do different special attacks and the like and you just sort of progress through chapters of the game going to different worlds getting a new sort of big special attack after you beat each world with like a new star and Mostly just enjoying what I think is one of the staples of the series and it's sort of, again, continuing on from Super Mario RPG is uh, a lot of fantastic comedy and uh, just good dialogue all, all around, to be quite frank. The Mario RPG games in general have some of the most dialogue of any any Mario games. Um, give, you know, if you've played a mainline one, there's, there's often not a lot of story, not a lot of things to be said. Uh, these are the complete opposite. You know, while the stories uh particularly the first paper mario is a bit more traditional it's still you know big bad is bowser bowser take peach you stop bowser <laughs> you know pretty standard <laughs> but princess is in another castle yeah yeah pretty much um uh the sequel paper mario the thousand year door sort of took that same formula improved on it a bit you know added in these the crowds and stuff which gave you special points and you know we won't go into the full detail um but i think really helped to flesh out this this Mario universe by taking it out of the Mushroom Kingdom, had this cool place called Rogue Port, uh, and this new land to explore and uh, you know, meet new species of of, of uh, enemies that become partners, um and and obviously incorporate sort of new Mario lore it back into Paper Mario, like the Super Mario Sunshine stuff, like the Piantas got folded into the into the game as like mafia bosses, and that was super cool to see. But really sort of, again, pushed, and I think of all the Mario RPGs, I think probably this one particular game on the GameCube, pushed storytelling and world building for the Mario brand further than anything else. I think that's the the amount of characters, not just that you actually have in your party, but just in the world. It's, it, it is a really rich world with lots of characters uh, populating it, all with stuff to say, all having different roles and different, you know, purposes, shops and, diff, you know, just it's amazing. Uh, and dressing them all differently so they aren't just, you know, many, many Goombas that look the same, but um, have different clothes, like, you know, one will wear glasses because they're smart and another will, you know, be like blue or red or just things to distinguish them and actually make them characters rather than nameless creatures was just really fantastic. And that's what the, you know, first two Paper Mario games, 
I did very well and why a lot of people loved them so, so, so much. And um, I guess, you know, you get one, you get two. After that, you kind of expect to get a third that at least follows the same sort of general formula. But, you know, as maybe I'll throw it back to you, Brendan, that's that's not the way it went, uh, <laughs> to say the least. Precisely. So it was really that personality that really elevated the Paper Mario series for me. But I think for a lot of people, it was the gameplay systems. It was the fact that it was a JRPG. It had those mechanics that you recruited party members, you fought turn-based battles, you started off relatively weak and you ended up saving the world effectively or facing a big bad and had epic moments and epic battles. And after Thousand Year Door, that's what a lot of us expected would be the trend of the series. We thought it would be like the Mario and Luigi games where each game did something different story-wise, but the core mechanics remained the same. But that was not to be for Paper Mario. So the next game in the series was Super Paper Mario on the Wii, originally planned for the GameCube, but became a very early Wii title. I believe it was a 2007 release. So we're talking first year of the Wii here. And I, I personally, I remember being impacted by it as well because I, I went into the game, expected to have a game like the original Paper Mario, which I rented back in the day on the 64 or Thousand Year Door, which I absolutely adored and is one of my favourite games, as discussed on the GameCube episode we did of Blowing Cartridges a couple of months ago. But Super Paper Mario, it had the dialogue, it had the writing, it had the type of story that we expected from a Paper Mario game, but it didn't have the gameplay system. It was effectively a 2D platformer that had some forced perspective changes where you it took the idea of being the paper aesthetic to its logical conclusion that basically you could fold into the world and there was extra puzzles and platforming to be found doing that and there was some boss there's still bosses and the like that you fought but it was very much more along the lines of a action rpg without any sort of progression system or xp system so it was sort of the it's like a mix of it action RPG and just sort of a action platformer that you'd see back in the Super Nintendo NES days. So it was an interesting concept, an interesting blend of genres, but not what a lot of of the fans were expecting. So I think it, it sold relatively well, but it disappointed a lot of people. And uh, from reading a Waterask interviews about the successive Paper Mario game, it seems that one of the criticisms of the game was that it had too much writing. It had too much story <laughs> because it was quite a verbose game. Like I never finished it because I wasn't that old at the time. I was about, I think, 13, 14. And I just remember all these really long cut scenes with just dialogue upon dialogue. And you had to just keep on pressing A to get through all the dialogue because it was interesting and the like, but it was just, it was the most story heavy game, I think, Nintendo has published outside of their visual novels, honestly. It was it was quite a interesting experience. So hmm. after that, there seemed to have been a backlash, but not the backlash the fans wanted. I'm sure a lot of fans wanted them to go back to the Thousand Year Door and uh, 64 systems. What made those games great? They probably just wanted a reiteration of Thousand Year Door, honestly. But what we got instead was... Paper Mario Sticker Star on the 3DS, which it has a turn-based system. It brings back combat like that, but 
there is no XP, there's no companions. One of the main criticisms of the game is that the battle system, because there's no XP, all you gain is coins, and it's very easy to get coins that encounters are virtually pointless, that there's not really any point to battle because there's not really anything you're gaining from battling. And without the veneer of the story, without the veneer of the world and all the companions and the the journey you went on in a Paper Mario game, it was probably the least liked game in the series. So after that, people were hoping, oh, surely they'll go back to the original the original layout. Surely they'll go back to what made the series great. Instead, we got Paper Mario Color Splash on the Wii U, which I'm sure about five people played because it's on the Wii U. <laughs> and overall, it, it was better received than Sticker Star. It did a lot of things that Sticker Star did, but just better. It, it brought back a bit of the story, not, not the same as had been in the first three games, but it had a bit more life than Sticker Star. It had a, a bit more to it and it brought in this paint mechanic that you were repainting the world and but it, it didn't really go beyond that. So again, a lot of people were disappointed. Again, a lot of people hope that surely they'll go back to the formula now. They've had three games that no one has really liked. Although Super Paper Mario on the Wii has Defenders and even Color Splash, there's some people out there that like it. A lot of people don't and think it's a very tedious game, but there are some people that enjoy it. Sticker Star, I've yet to meet anyone that actually likes that game. So if you like that game, contact us at Blowing Cartridges <laughs> and we can have a discussion about that. After that, which was about, I think, correct me, but I think that was about 2015, oh, 2016, it was a late Wii U game, Color Splash, just yep. before the Switch launch. So after that, it was a bit in a limbo. It was We didn't really know where things were going until at the very start of 2020, it was a... Oh, no, it's very end of 2019, wasn't it? It was a very um, unexpected announcement. It wasn't really attached to any of... No, no, I think it, I think it was uh, It was like May 2020. It was like post-COVID and we were like, are we going to get Nintendo Directs? And then the answer was no. We're getting a Twitter drop. <laughs> yes. No matter when it was, it was very much an unexpected Twitter announcement or, or, or social media announcement of here's a YouTube video and it was a trailer to paper mario origami king and that with a release date of about four months after it was revealed so it was a very um surprise announcement from nintendo and instantly people were analyzing pulling apart the trailer trying to figure out oh does it have turn-based battles again is, is it going back to what made this what, what we liked nearly 20 years ago now is, is it that game it was, there was a lot of chewing and throwing there was a, as i said people dissected that and what was the result zach before, well, I guess an overview before we actually dive into it in earnest. Yeah, I mean, look, what I would say is, uh, as you sort of pointed out correctly, Brendan, you've got your sort of your lovers of the original two Paper Marios, then Super Paper Mario. Uh, you've got your defenders and your haters. Um, I'm certainly a defender, and I, because I really enjoyed that game. Uh, Sticker Star disliked Origami King step in the not Origami King Color Splash step in the right direction. And now we've got Color Splash, and it, it's sort of, it's not Color Splash, we've got Origami King. I keep mixing them up. Very similar looking games. Anyway, the reception has been all over the place, I would say. I mean, if you look at, you know, Metacritic or Open Critic, I'm sure it's sitting comfortably in, I don't know, high 70s, maybe. Or it's on 80. Or 80. Yeah, 80's about right. Because it, again, has continued the trend back towards the original games, but still hasn't fully embraced every single demand of fans of those original games 
But it's also come at a time where I think people are now more open than ever or have accepted the situation we're in, which is that the things that those original games had may or never be coming back. There's been a lot of interviews, both around color, sorry, around color splash time, uh, sticker star time, and then obviously now Origami King time from uh, people at Nintendo that gleam a little bit of light into, I guess, the situation around the Mario branding and what restrictions they're either self-imposing or getting told by some sort of, you know, sounds like there's almost like a council or a committee of, of Mario brand controllers uh, that sort of dictate what can and can't be done within <laughs> Nintendo themselves that have, I guess, confirmed or, you know, what some people feared, which is the stuff that got, you know, intelligent systems did back in the day when they were probably given a bit more license just to be crazy, uh, have all these, like, again, like having Piantas that are literally mafia, for example, in a Mario game, in hindsight, seems crazy, whereas now... For the last three games, you know, you're lucky to get a toad wearing a chef's hat. <laughs> you know, you're getting lots of Goombas all look the same. Lots of toads all look the same. Cooper Troopers all look the same. Very few other uh, unconventional enemies brought in with significant variations. But with that said, Origami King does bring back enough of the core elements to an extent. Plus just to some good new things as well that are actually quite enjoyable that I think it's, again, elevated to a point where a lot of people love it, think it's the best in the series, or certainly one of the better games in the series. Uh, but then there's still people who just are frustrated <laughs> that we can't go back to the way things were on GameCube and 64 in, in seemingly any capacity. Uh, and it's almost started, like, I think there's a basically a, a class of YouTuber, which are the Paper Mario, uh, like discusses is what i'm going to call them like there's this there's so many <laughs> people that have seemed to have built an identity about their love of the originals and their hatred of sticker star and color splash or, or vice versa their, their love of the new ones and the oh, the old ones they weren't actually that good so it's just such a fascinating one to analyze and discuss because uh it really is just there's just so much to unpack and that's that's what we're going to do for the next um you know, however long this podcast ends up going for. So, yeah. Um, I don't know, Brendan, where do, where do you want to start? There's, there's so many ways we could we could tackle it. Um, maybe first, actually, sorry, should we give us a, a, give a brief history of the Paper Marios we've played? Maybe even just more broadly, if you want the experience with the RPG Mario brand in general. Did you want to, did you want to go first? Sure, I can briefly unpack my experience. So, I think I kind of covered it in the synopsis, but... I've never played Mario RPG, have it on a number of formats, but haven't got to it yet. I played the first Paper Mario on the 64 as a rental from Video Easy that was quite close to where I used to live um, growing up, and I have it on Virtual Console, but I really want to go back and complete it as a whole, but never had the chance to do that. The one I really spent a lot of time on was Thousand Year Door. That's the one I nearly finished twice, but... As I've mentioned in previous episodes, I haven't been unable to finish that last boss and maybe it'll be third time lucky. I, I do want to do another playthrough soon. Maybe I'll do them all in sequential order because I nearly own, own them all, but haven't done that yet. I have Sticker Star because it was quite cheap at one point on the 3DS because no one wanted it, as we mentioned, but don't have an experience playing that. Similarly, 
color splash, I missed it because of the reception of it. So haven't touched that either. And that brings me to Origami King, which I did play and we'll get into what I think about it very soon. But that's my history in a nutshell. And I think personally, I fell in love with Thousand Year Door because of that turn-based system. So I very much understand why a lot of people were upset with the direction of the series. But now that I sit back in 2022 and actually reflect on the trajectory of the series and what it represents today, I think it really is that writing. It really is the world and the journey you go on in those first two Paper Mario games and even Super Paper Mario, which I kind of just jumped over, but that that's one I haven't finished either and played a little bit of it. And I enjoyed it, but I didn't finish it because of that expectation that it would be like Thousand Year Door and it wasn't. So at the time I dropped it quite quickly and never went back. But as I said, reflecting on it, I think the strengths of the series have always laid in the writing in the world. And I think that's what they're getting back to, especially with Origami King. I, I, I feel that it's a, it's a return to the strength of what that series does at its best, which is exhibited in Origami King. And there's some moments in the game that are absolutely sublime and really made me stop and think. So I, I think it very much... I think it's a return to force in that regard, and a lot of people would argue against that, I'm sure, but that's my opinion of it. Yeah, I mean, so I... I mean, but my history with the Mario series, RPG series is almost the same as yours, <laughs> pretty much almost verbatim, except that I have finished Super Paper Mario, and... I've also dabbled in the Mario and Luigi games, but actually haven't really finished any of them mm-hmm. uh, either for that matter, just for the record. But um, yeah, obviously the first two I have finished. Um, Sticker Star, I couldn't stomach and uh, Color Splash, I didn't actually dislike when I was playing it, but I just sort of never got around to finishing it. And then the Switch came out and I wasn't going to go back. So yeah, and and, and to just, touch on your last point i i think you're right at this point i and i think super paper mario is probably why i know this fact to be true i don't necessarily need the turn-based combat that i thought i needed when i first you know sort of experienced super paper mario i actually just want good writing good story uh interesting characters and uh a cool world really to explore that's that's enough for me and i've, I've said this to you privately but i mean if you turned paper mario into like a adventure game like a go around just talking and, and solving puzzles and actually remove combat i'd probably be very okay with it as a concept because that's what i've enjoyed the most the combat and stuff i'm not saying it's bad i you know certainly enjoyed the originals and and to an extent i found joy in some of the combat systems of, of super paper mario and origami king Otherwise, I you know couldn't get through them, which is again a big reason I couldn't get through Sticker Star because the combat in that is just real bad, <laughs> to be blunt. But yeah, you're right; it's the writing, and that's really what I look for in these games. And now the question, I guess, is does Origami King tick the box enough uh, for me? And I, I don't know if we want to go into that now or if we want to delve into something else first. I'm happy to go really either way, I, I suppose. I think 
probably a good place to start actually is dissecting the combat system of mm. Origami King because I think that's what people were obsessed with when it was first revealed. That was the thing that people were trying to fossick through the videos and find out what it's all about. And it actually, I'd argue, it does something quite unique in the RPG genre. It does something that I think might have been tried in similar ways, but nothing quite to this extent. And I think there's a lot of missed opportunities in it from my perspective, because I think it has a sound base. It's actually quite an intriguing thing that they attempted to pull Mm. off and it does some interesting things and i guess to describe it it's very much like maybe you can do it better than me but it's very much like a it's like a puzzle game the battle system you're lining up enemies that are arranged on a circular board that you can arrange either i guess on the horizontal or vertical axis and it's all about lining them up in pair in groups of four and then you can either stomp on them and there's various upgrades you can get to your boots or you can hit them with a hammer. And again, there's various upgrades you can get of your hammer. And they're all sort of along the lines of Breath of the Wild. They're all breakable items. So these are items that you'll use your coins in shops to purchase or often you just find them in the world if you explore enough. And actually, there's more than enough to go around in the game, really, of these boosted hammers and boots that it's not really a problem. But it's probably good to say, like the last three... Well... Since Super Paper Mario, there's no experience point system in the game. It's very much you do battles and from the battles you get coins and using coins you can buy collectibles or you buy items or there's some other things you can use coins for throughout the game, but that's pretty much it. Yeah, so I mean you're spot on that it's a puzzle sort of style combat system where most of the time if you can figure out the optimal solution, you'll you'll kill the enemies without needing any sort of loss of health, I suppose, or they won't even get a chance to attack, particularly in the early game. Later in the game, you might not be able to do them in one hit, because unless you have uh, some of those uh, consumable items that you just referred to, Brendan, to do extra damage. But, I I mean, the other way, the other analogy I'd say is it's kind of like more simplistic Rubik's Cube puzzles, because the way you can move the, the circular grid is very much like a Rubik's Cube. You know, you can move things vertically or horizontally in terms of the the enemies on the grid and so i think you know if you if you're one of those people who can look at a rubik's cube and solve it in you know two seconds flat you can probably beat all of these fights quite quite easily i would have thought if you're someone who struggles to visualize if i do step one two three four what will this look like which is um where i (laughs) the camp i sit in um you might find a bit more challenging but uh not necessarily to the point where you can't beat the game because, hey, again, here I am sitting that I, I did beat the game. <laughs> As you said at the start, Brendan, it's just, it is a actually a quite a clever and cool concept for a game uh, and a battle system in general. Um, you know, had uh, I can't deny that. My main issue with, with the combat was after you kind of had solved the puzzle, uh, so each each enemy encounter in the world had a specific placement in the puzzle. So I guess, it, I'm sure, I don't know if anyone's done this, but you could probably count the number of unique puzzle like placements for enemies in the game. Uh, and once you've done it and you've solved it, like a lot of things, it's, it's, it's not that much fun to do it again, which 
it's probably where my biggest gripe came was, as you said, because there's no experience and it's really just coins. It got to the point where when I was re-encountering enemies, getting the same pattern, and I'm just like, this is not fun because I don't need the coins. So I'm not like enjoying the grind. Um, but also I'm not being challenged with a new puzzle. And ultimately the combat isn't engaging enough while there is still a bit of that sort of active time blocking and, and pressing A to, you know, do extra damage with the jumps, um, but isn't engaging enough to enjoy just repeating the same puzzles again and again and again uh, if you accidentally run into enemies uh, rather than, you know, what I inevitably did, which was do everything I could to <laughs> to avoid them. And I think ultimately that's what the main issue with the battle system is because for the most part I enjoyed it, but I had the exact same experience of trying to avoid encounters towards the end of the game because it is just a bit repetitive after you've done it for 30 plus hours. And I think one of the missed opportunities there is that they didn't try to change it up. Like, I would have loved if they did things like, oh, instead of there being one circle that you have to move around, now there's two, like, halfway through the game, or we've just made it a lot harder, or this is how we can introduce companion characters, that there's multiple circles and they sort of interact with each other in some way. And it is a turn-based system, but perhaps they could have introduced more actors in that turn-based system and maybe you control two of them. So there's more things you have to think about. Maybe they could have increased the complexity of it. And you do see some complexity in there with the boss battles because the boss battles use the same system, but it adds different mechanics to it because instead of you being in the middle of the circle and you're trying to line up the enemies to effectively dispatch them, you start outside the circle and the boss is in the middle and there's various different prompts around the circle, like going left, right, up, down, attack, your velamental attack, which are these origami elemental creations that sort of very much embody the JRPG trope of collecting all four elements uh, and helping them, or like the elemental crystals or whatever to succeed in your journey. Yep, that's all in Origami King. So it shows they were open to do different things with the battle system and they were just a bit scared of taking the complexity to the next level. And I think that shows in that one of the potential issues with the system, but it's also one of the pros too, is that it's very much in line with how Nintendo are trying to make all the games accessible in the modern era that you can use coins to throw at the toads that are in the crowd of your battles and they can rearrange the board. And if you pay them enough coins, basically they'll rearrange the board for you to the optimal solution and you basically clear the encounter. They don't do that as much in the boss fights, So that difficulty is still there, but they can give you more or you can get more time with coins or you can get more health so you can sustain yourself that way. I think ultimately the bones are there, but it just doesn't do enough to stray away from monotony, unfortunately, at the end of the day. Yeah, I think it's a very cool idea, and I'm glad a game has done it. <laughs> that sounds really weird to say it like that, but... No, I agree with you, because hopefully there's an indie game out there or some other developer that tries to do more things with it, because I'd love them... I'd love someone to return to it. Yeah, I, so would I. I mean, I think the idea of, like, taking the... Again, the general skill set that you would use to solve a Rubik's Cube, but fleshing it out into a a more bite-sized game is cool and then adding on a story rpg adventure into that rather than just you know do puzzle one you did it now do puzzle two was very very cool but yeah it just really highlighted that point that i made before where like had you just stripped out 
the battles and let me walk through and just sort of solve puzzles and stuff, I would have probably been just as happy, um, particularly if you didn't make me repeat the puzzles and I was just doing unique puzzles at all, all time. So I think that is the majority of the combat. The one thing just to quickly touch on there is there's one other combat type, I suppose, where yes. you're in the overworld and you do, again, more platformy, actiony style combat and... It's an action RPG combat, effectively. Yeah, pretty much. Um, Without any special abilities or magic or anything, you just have your attack button, which is either jump or hammer. Yeah, and I mean, those sections were also quite fun. They were good break-up, and certainly some of those bosses were quite memorable. Um, we're just, I mean, we probably made it clear at the start, but we are going to talk about spoilers, but I, I particularly remember the squid um, or the blooper uh, on the ship. I think that was one of the more fun boss fights uh, where you sort of run and hit the tentacles. Uh, and I think that ship section in general was great because it's that build up to the, you know, blooper as you sort of see it as you wander around the ship and you might see its tentacle in the background move away was super cool. But they also kind of just feel like standard Mario bosses. I mean, in some ways, the, the blooper on the ship was very similar to the blooper in um, Super Mario Sunshine. Uh, in the way you dealt with it so they're not like anything revolutionary but they were nice to have that variety uh, and break up the other types of combat from from time to time and i quite enjoyed it like i don't know if you encountered it but there's this battle island on the great sea portion of the Mm. game where you have to do this battle royale against i think there's five or six encounters because in terms of the narrative design of the game, the idea is that these large creatures that you're fighting on the overworld are paper mache creatures that have been created by the evil villain of the game, Ollie. And uh, these are just basically large versions of things like Goombas and Chain Chomps and Shy Guys and your general rogues gallery of Bowser minions. And I-, I found that quite enjoyable because, yes, it's ultimately a simple system, the open world action combat but it's quite nerve-wracking and also quite frenetic because it is based on i guess timing and um, your um, dexterity with the controller and also i think they introduce some great combat towards the they they use it very well to at the very end of the game where one of the phases of the main boss again ollie is using that overworld combat system it's not using the turn-based puzzle system it's using that action system to do one of the phases of the boss and that's when you have a large paper mache bowser that's assisting you in the fight and honestly that's one of the best moments of the game and it's a really good um, change up so like we were going on about how it's a bit monotonous the gameplay portion of the game but there's parts of it particularly at the very end of the game that they change it up enough that it's satisfying i found yeah 100 agree and uh i suppose this might be a good point to segue to the story because that kind of adds into like i guess the ebbs and flows of when the combat got stale versus when it didn't so just to quickly set up the overall plot i mean you've you basically you know you're mario you're going to peach's castle for cake probably as you as you always do i can't, I can't remember exactly why he was going there you're going to the origami festival oh, of course the origami festival hence the name Name of the game. All right, you get there and you're greeted with a, a very creepy and uh, sort of threatening kind of peach who looks all different because she's been folded a lot of times. 
before being thrown into a dungeon uh, when you refuse to to battle her effectively. And turns out her, as many others in the uh, in the Mushroom Kingdom, and and more specifically, actually Bowser's uh, Bowser's minions have been, uh, I guess, effectively brainwashed or taken control of uh, by Ollie, as you referenced before, Brendan, who is an origami little fairy prince kind of thing. Uh, and the way he's done it is he's taken the normally flat 2D paper characters of the Paper Mario world and folded them into origami versions of either themselves or, or something else at times, and thus they become kind of his subordinates. Um, luckily, right before he effectively turns you into his minion, by you I mean Mario, you get saved by a few people. One, of course, uh, being your companion in this game, the the follow-up to this, the little crown and the the bucket from, from the last two Paper Marios, um, <laughs> being Olivia, who is, um, I don't know when it's revealed, but again, we're, we're going full spoilers. At, but it's, at, at the very start. The very start, okay, good. Well, She's yeah. Ollie's brother. Uh, Ollie's sister, but uh, yeah, but either way, yeah, sorry, cl- good you know what I meant, yeah, Ollie's sister, <laughs> sibling. Um, so I guess the princess of Aragami, and as well as Bowser's minions, because they're the ones that haven't been converted at least to evil. And Bowser himself, who is he hasn't been converted into an Aragami minion, but he has been folded multiple times to the point where he's uh quite incapacitated from. From doing anything else. I think it turns out he's stapled. Stapled. That's right. He got stapled together. And and Bowser Jr. as well is, is, is helping out. Anyway, you fly away, escape, and then things blow up and you all get a bit separated except for you and Olivia and you find yourself in a forest and bada bing bada boom. Uh, you begin your journey through the many, many Mario Kingdom lands um, where ultimately you're tasked with uh, fighting these, I guess, I can't remember. What, do you remember what the term is the, 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 for the official, like, I know the guard, like the, <laughs> they got a name. The folded soldiers. Yeah, of the of Oli effectively who are guarding these these ribbons, um, which are uh, lifting Peach's castle sort of into the sky, and ultimately sort of I guess giving uh, Oli his power and helping him keep everybody in origami form. And all these these soldiers and uh, these sort of protectors of the ribbons end up being uh, stationary objects um, with with no facial features or anything. It's literally like we're talking like a pair of scissors, a stapler, tape, that kind of stuff, uh, as if it, you'd basically taken a photo of them. And Ollie went to Office Works and he got an army. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I, anyone who has played prior entries to the Paper Mario series, particularly the last two probably recognize some of them as as stickers or whatever the hell they were in color splash but um they've they're basically been repurposed into into these bosses which is not to say they don't have personality in fact despite being like visually unappealing things um the bosses i think had some of the best personality or the most interesting characters in some ways in the, in the entire game despite their, their bland appearance Oh, definitely. They were all quite caricatures of uh, what their forms actually represent. So they were very, they're very amusing. It, it didn't really make sense at all, but I think that was part of the charm that they were going for. I think, as a brief segue, I honestly think this is one of the best recent localization jobs Nintendo have done. It was 
really well managed and it doesn't really fall into meme territory at any point. There's, I can't really think of any moments that I think will age poorly. It's it's very self-referential. It's it's taken the mickey out of itself, but it's really done. It's done really well, and I think you see that in how they crafted those bosses. They actually give them character when, as you said, they're like it's a pair of scissors. It's it's a tape dispenser with sticky tape. And like take the scissors for example. If you um read the dialogue, it's as if it's it's like a samurai warrior, and it's talking about oh. I'm going to give you guys a chance. I'm not going to unsheath myself like until halfway through the battle so you can actually defeat me. And it's sort of, oh, don't don't break my sheath. You'll be, you'll be sorry if you do. And then if you do, basically, it, it basically adds a potential for an instant kill against you if you don't dodge it in time that you're cut up. But there's a point in the battle that that's inevitable and you're going to have to face that potential anyway. So it does some neat things there, definitely. Yeah, for sure. And um, I think the other element of the journey is the uh, sort of the finding these uh, elemental, I don't know if you call them spirits or deities. Um, Again, there was probably an official term. There is a specific term that I'm, valumentals or volumentals. I don't know if you remember it. Yeah, velumentals. It's a pun on elemental. Yeah. I don't know what the V stands for. Yeah, neither do I, but the the velumentals, which are... effectively these giant beasts um that have been uh similarly sort of turned evil via origami powers i suppose but by finding them and beating them uh you get the power to sort of transform into them um and do special attacks and abilities uh as you progress through the game which builds out the combat a good amount particularly uh future boss fights um because often you can use powers from the previous boss you know value mentals to to defeat the stationary but also defeat the other uh future value mentals that you fight um as per usual video game logic you conveniently beat like the water one and then later on fight the fire one needing water convenience um but that's you know also quite cool um and that sort of also is where olivia plays her part as she um, obviously has some origami powers being a origami princess and she uh, transforms into those beasts for you and you as Mario sort of ride her to perform the attacks which I guess kind of is like you know if we compare that to past Paper Mario games it's like the surrogate of the the stars so like you know the crystal stars in Thousand Year Door and um, the star sprites or spirits from the original game. Exactly. There's a, there's a lot of uh, similarities. There's a lot of links back to previous efforts in the Paper Mario series. And I really like the relationship between Olivia and Mario. I think it really works well, both from a gameplay perspective, as you mentioned, it's she, she's the one that's folding herself into these elemental creatures. And also from the story perspective as well, I think she's a, she's a really good foil. It's quite a heartwarming relationship, actually. She could have been quite annoying, but the writing makes the character very endearing, and I really enjoyed it. And there's there's quite a good payoff at the very end as well. Like it's it's a really good complete journey. I thought, even though she she doesn't really develop as a character per se, but there's a little bit of character development as well, which works. I think it it, it doesn't. They don't overplay it. Yeah, I mean, she's very cute. She's very funny. Uh very. She's very happy go lucky in the sense that she wants everyone to be. She wants the best for everyone i find um and she has some certain like things she loves and you learn 
you know, what she loves and doesn't like throughout the game as you regress and she'll just pop out and say a few things uh, and they link a lot of that back into certain moments, which I don't know if we want to get into. I mean, we might as well, but um, yeah, of the recent companions, uh, she's probably, you know, when I say recent companions, I'm talking about the last few games where you've had one sort of companion that follows you around for the most part versus a whole team of them. Um, so the, the, again, the crown and the bucket being the ones I think of the, primarily she's easily the best without i think a question just the most fun uh, of them all and i have to call out probably the best sort of well actually no i won't do this yet sorry we probably should talk about the temporary companions because i think that'll lead into the scene i was going to talk about which you probably already know what i'm going to say brendan but um do you want to do you want to talk through the temporary companions because they were interesting leading up to the game because we saw the hints of them and that gave people hope that we were getting the return of having, you know, Bowser minions slash other Mario creatures following you around. And it kind of happened, but not to the extent of the original two games. So do you want to talk the audience through what, what was the go there? There's three, technically four temporary companion characters. And I say technically four because two of them sort of happen at the same time and follow you at the same time. So whether you count them as one or two, I guess is all semantics. But the way they're implemented is there's just certain moments in the story in in certain zones when you'll encounter these characters and then they'll follow you around for a little bit. One follows you around the most at, at the start and that's um, Olivia dubs him Bob because he's a bomb on. Great name, isn't it? <laughs> and how companions are implemented in the game is they follow you around on the overworld so they experience story beat elements with you where they scripted to happen like if you leave the zone to backtrack or the like they'll stay in that zone there'll be a little bit of throwaway dialogue basically saying oh we're not going to go there or i can't exactly remember because i only did it with one of the companions Mm, but they just stay there and then you go off and you come back and they'll be with you again so they follow you around for the story beat and they also do help you in battle but basically it's effectively an extra attack when you line up your enemies and you might jump on them or throw throw your hammer or hit your hammer and then they'll follow up and they'll either attack in, they'll attack four enemies at a time in various variations. So they can help you there, but it's neat. It helps you in certain moments to, I guess, get the battles done quicker, which we did talk about earlier that do become tedious. And that's about it for the companions. But as I mentioned, there's a bomb bomb. There's an archaeologist, Toad, who was a lot of fun, kind of like Captain Toad, but not as useful as Captain Toad because he's secretly the best Nintendo character they've ever designed. Captain Toad for Smash, get him in there. He can't jump, but he's useful other ways. And then the third and fourth companions, which happened at the same time, are Kamek and Bowser Jr. Is Bowser Jr. or Baby Bowser? Bowser Jr., yes. I can't honestly tell you what the difference is, but yes, <laughs> Bowser Jr. and Kamek are the companions, and I just love the Kamek implementation. Kamek was probably my one of my favorite characters in the game because he's just written as a really jaded Bowser minion who's kind of like, I have to babysit Bowser Jr. No one listens to me. I've been a faithful, loyal servant to Bowser and basically haven't really achieved anything, and you find him as a groundskeeper at this, uh, oh, it's like this, it's this toad retreat where all the toads are wearing angel wings and it's up in the sky. And basically the story behind it is at, at the very start of the game when uh, Bowser gets defeated by 
Ollie that his uh, flying fortress thing crashed into these hot springs. It's, I think it's called... It's a play on words of Shangri-La. It's a spa, Spa-Gri-La or yeah, something, like something that, along yeah. those lines. Shangri-Spa, maybe? I don't know. Whatever. Yes, yeah. Shangri-Spa, yes. And basically, the castle crashed into Shangri-Spa and the minions have to pay off the damage they did. So they basically cleaning up Shangri-Spa and acting as a low-rent labour, which is very amusing, very funny. And uh, there's a running joke where Olivia's just calling him a groundskeeper and talking about, oh, so you're a groundskeeper at the castle too, and things like that. And it's it's all just quite sweet and amusing. But I guess that's a quick wrap-up of the four companions that follow you around. And Bowser Jr. is probably my second favourite because he's basically singed and damaged and you have to take him to all the hot springs at Shangri Spa and you soak in the hot springs, which of course doesn't make any sense at all because you're paper, but who who cares? There's a suspension of belief there. Yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say probably consistently in the Mario RPG like pantheon, all, all, all of them, Bowser and now the Bowser family um, and, and minions have always been highlights. Like, uh, in, you know, Mario RPG, Bowser's funny, and then Paper Mario and uh, all the Paper Marios, Bowser is funny, and then Bowser Jr. has come in and has continued to be chip off the old block, I suppose, and uh, in Mario and Luigi series, Bowser is also incredibly funny, and obviously Bowser's inside story focuses in on that, so I think it's not a surprise that Kamek and Bowser Jr. and Bowser as well, I think he follows you for a bit in his stapled form, are all fantastic companions. Not a shock. Of the ones that aren't Bowser, um, or Bowser adjacent, uh, yeah, you hit it on that Bobby is the the most interesting of the bunch. I mean, I have no issues with the Explorer Toad by any you know, stretch of the imagination. But yeah, Bobby is, is special because he, he follows you the furthest and across a few different areas. You know, it's, yes. you learn when you meet him, he's got amnesia. And if you've got a keen eye, you'll notice that this bob is missing a, a key appendage of it, being its wick at the top of its head. Uh, and you might be like, what's that about? As you journey with Bobby, you eventually realize, uh, or he starts to remember, that uh, he left his wick on a cruise ship. A cruise ship that is mysteriously just sort of in ruins, I suppose, in the middle of the ocean. And he remembers this sort of after Olivia, your companion, gets trapped under a boulder. And you're like, how do I get Olivia out? No idea. I'm I'm very confused. And Bobby's like, ah, I've remembered stuff. Follow me. And he's like, let's go to this cruise ship. So you go there, explore the ship. And eventually you find his his wick in a a cabin in um, in the ship. And he says, he explains his backstory, which is effectively him and his, his bob on friends were all on a sort of last hurrah sort of cruise, having a party when the ship was attacked by a giant octopus. And they all bravely, you know, sacrificed themselves in an attempt to defeat this, this giant octopus. But Bobby, I can't remember exactly, and maybe Brennan, you can fill in the gap, but um, he ultimately didn't blow up and kill himself. He got knocked away and, and lost his way and lost his wick and memory in the same process. So I don't know if the squid hit him away or exactly what happened. Uh, do, do you recall? Because you finished it a bit more recently than I did. Basically, he's got knocked out when he was fighting the, um, what's it called? The blooper? Yeah, yeah the blooper. The octopus, yeah. the blooper. So fighting the blooper. But he was on this trip and I think he had a friend who had passed away and he kept the wick 
of his friend in this chest in his room. So he went to get his friend's wick because his was gone. Yeah, that's that's correct. So you go there, get the wick, fight the the octopus, and get revenge for that. And I think during the flashbacks, there's like this uh, general sentiment. I think it might have been a quote from his friend that, uh, you know, Bobom's lives uh, uh, tend to be short, and so it, it's their their main focus is to go out with a blast and really like put their life to good use. Uh, is is their creed or their motto, I suppose. So anyway, uh, you get this week, and then Bobby's like, "Okay, I can we can save Olivia now. We know what to do." Head back to this giant rock that she's been placed under by her brother again. Very very mean brother, <laughs> crushing his sister with a giant rock. And you can probably guess where this is going. Wick is lit. Bobby stands next to the rock, tells Mario to to go duck for cover, and boom, explodes. <laughs> Rock is gone, uh, Olivia is saved, but uh, poor old Bobby, uh, well, he, you know, he did what a bob does. He blow up and he saved a life and he put his life to good use, which is very dark and very, um, a very poignant moment, to say the least, and not super expected from Paper Mario, even though it has had some tragic stuff in the past. Oh, it has, but I think nothing to that level of impact, like Thousand Year Door and Super Paper Mario have some moments like that, but mm. that is Paper Mario at its darkest and probably its most meaningful. It, it was really, it was done really well, and then it really makes you think later in the game, like because Olivia will make comments about, "Oh, it's Bobby." Whenever you see Bombom's particularly at the very end, when you've teamed up with Bowser and you're going to Peach's castle and face Ollie, and it's like a turret section of the game. You're fighting off um, waves of paper mache enemies, a sort of paper planes and things like that and you're throwing bombs at them that blow up and it makes you think oh these are all characters that i'm killing right now and i never quite had that moment in a mario game before i don't think no because i mean even in the original two paper marios you had bomb companions but i mean you literally had them explode and they just come back <laughs> like that's just how they function in that those iterations of the mario world i suppose um so obviously they've had a change of heart here in terms of how bombs operate, or the, the again the the Mario brand council said no bombs when they explode they explode. <laughs> um, but um, I digress. But that also leads to another very Olivia moment that I was actually alluding to before. So earlier in the game you're in a theme park sort of level. It's kind of based in Japan. They have a lot of uh, sort of theme parks that are set in sort of fake uh, ancient or Japanese sort of towns and they usually also act as like movie sets and this is basically one of those and uh anyway Mario uh finds some paper mache like Goomba heads and he chucks one on and Olivia just loves it like cackles and Mario and Bobby just kind of like are amused by her laughter and um don't quite get why she thinks it's so funny but again she's kind of like a kid so it is the kind of thing a kid would find funny a giant bobblehead on their on their friend. Anyway, many hours later, fast forward to this Bobby's dead scene. Um, Olivia, very upset. You know, again, it's like a kid being confronted with death for the first time of her life. And she just doesn't know how to process it really. And um, she goes and hides away in this sort of cave and she's just crying. And Mario tries to talk to her and she's just, she's just too upset. Um, And, you know, Mario walks away and um, is met with the spirit of Bobby who, sort of comes back and just says, look, Mario, you know what to do. It's just, you got to find a way to cheer her up. Do you have anything that, uh, 
they can cheer her up. And luckily, uh, you would have picked up that big paper mache head and sitting in your inventory. Uh, <laughs> and you've just got to recall that, I suppose. Um, or look up a guide if you, if you if you don't. And then you go back to Olivia and you use that item, put the bobblehead on. And again, very much like you would expect it to with a real child, it, it's, it makes her giggle, makes her laugh. And she you know, suddenly, I guess, has the epiphany of like, you know, yes, sad things happen, but let's... You know, remember the good times and keep pushing forward and save save the world, really. Which, uh, again, I think is was a great end to Bobby's arc. It was just fantastic to have you know his journey with Mario and Olivia come to a full conclusion, and uh, even his spirit coming back and sort of with one last bit of you know help for Mario, but also again really helped I think solidify Olivia's I guess growth. Not that she has a ton, but a bit of growth through the whole journey and, and why she, I think she is, again, one of the better partners in the series. Oh, I, I echo what you said. And I think that's why, while some of the other companions are memorable, particularly, I'd argue, Kamek and Bowser Jr. Bowser, because they always are. Like, if you compare Bobby to the Toad archaeologist, well, we can't even remember his name. He he doesn't really do much. He and he's not really in it for long either. It's, that's a very much more, I guess, brief period of the story. And I think probably to move, quickly move away from the... Or briefly move away from the story discussion, I think one of my main issues with the game outside of, well, the combat being repetitive in part, even though, like, like we discussed, I liked aspects of the combat, is that the pacing just felt a bit off. It's, mm. it's a very weirdly paced game in that it drags a bit at the start and then... It very much, it really quickens up towards the back end. And you go through like the Great Sea and the Big Tower there and then Shangri Spa quite quickly. Whereas all the other zones before that seem to have gone for quite a bit. And story-wise, it really picks up as well and go, like goes very quickly as to that degree. So it, it just felt a bit weird, particularly, I think. And I think part of that reason is because, as you just outlined, the Bobby arc lasts for quite a while. That's... It's it's at least a quarter, if not a third, of the game is you're with Bobby. Yeah, it almost feels like they had grander plans to have more time with each companion. I think that didn't probably pan out either due to other gameplay stuff where they just had to shrink certain sections or budget or whatever. Because I I agree, the amount of time Bobby got was a lot to the point where. Because he was the first one, it, it maybe cheapened the rest a little bit. But it's also implementation because, like, in all this discussion, we actually ignored one of the companions. One of the companions is that toad captain who pilots the boat and submarine that you find. And oh. you've, he's sort of some ancient being that you find in a tomb frozen because he, he crossed someone in, like, the ancient times of this Mario world. And he's quite amusing and... He has a fantastic music theme, actually. We'll, mm. we'll, I'm sure we'll get on the music to um, close this game. He has a fantastic um, music accompaniment to him, but he doesn't really do much, and he's not really like memorable as a companion, more kind of memorable as a character, but even then, not really. He's just kind of there. He helps progress the story, but like it, it just feels a bit throwaway, ultimately. Yeah, and I mean, even the Professor Toad or whatever it is, Archaeologist Toad, it is just called, like, Something Toad. It was more function over character. Like, he was, like, he has his purpose when you're in the desert of uh, Archaeologist. He can dig things up. 
but that's about what he's all, all he's good for. Like, yeah, he, oh, I guess he translates stuff for you in the story, but, like, that's, you know, whatever. Like, you could use any sort of device to justify translating ancient ruins if you really wanted to. Definitely had very little to no emotional story. The Captain Toad, uh, weird. I find it funny they had a Captain Toad with a K when they already have another Captain Toad in Mario, but whatever. But, like, yeah, he was funny. But again, just funny. So yeah, Bobby was the only one with any sort of emotional story compared to like, again, the original games where each sort of companion has a full little sort of story arc, I suppose, as they decide to become Mario's companion for the most part, other than maybe a couple of exceptions. But yeah, it was, and from a combat perspective, we haven't really talked about it a ton, but the companions basically act as like autopilot additional attacks. You can't tell them what to do, and they just maybe attack, maybe they don't. Uh, depends how they feel, really, <laughs> and to varying levels of usefulness, I suppose. Which, again, I think was probably quite... Well, for me, definitely was disappointing, because it wasn't to the same level of strategy as we got with, again, prior companions in the original two games. Ultimately, they're purely just there to progress the story and also just to do some things like translation and the like when needed, but... That's only all translation or pilot the submarine in, in regards to Captain Toad. Like, that's all it is. But yeah, I think we've given a pretty good overlay of all the key stuff, I would, would, would say. Probably the last... Well, now there's nothing. There's a, there's a bit more to quickly delve into. One thing the game also has a big focus on is it's it's got a great little laundry list if you want a hundred percent or you're a completionist. Because um, which I, for the record, I did a hundred percent this game. Um, I did everything, and it has a few key components. So one thing which we haven't even touched on, which you know, it's pretty prominent when you see trailers of the game is the world has a lot of tears in it and Mario can collect confetti and throw it around to fill up the, the holes, which is one thing um, of, a, of the completionist element. That gives you some coins or uh, some health. Um, often you actually have to do that to to get across bridges or whatever that have got holes in them, which was, I don't know, what the confetti component, which is kind of an evolution of the paint component, I think, from Color Splash, while it was somewhat satisfying, it also was a bit nothing because you'd run out of confetti and that could get quite frustrating when you needed it and it just meant you had to go bang a tree or something for a, a good minute to collect more. I mean, I know, Brendan, did you, do you have any feelings one way or the other about the, the confetti sort of system, I suppose? Like, it, it made sense from a world design narrative perspective, but... In reality, as it's executed, I agree with you. I didn't really enjoy it, honestly. I found there were moments that I just couldn't be bothered because I'd, I was out of confetti and there was nowhere nearby to replenish it. Or It was a bit redundant. It was just a bit repetitive. I, I much preferred finding the toads and unfolding them, which yeah. I guess I'm sure that was your next point. But basically, it, the other main collectible in the world is that there's all these toads that have been folded by Ollie because basically... To cut a long story short, Ollie has a grudge against Toads like most of the fans of Paper Mario who hate Toads, which actually I found very funny. It's almost as if 
the developers were making a commentary on that because one of the criticisms of Color Splash was, oh, there's no real characters in the world, they're all toads, and Origami King goes to that extent where Ollie's um, rationale is he wants to take over the world and destroy all the toads because a toad created him, and the Master Origami folder is a toad, and basically he scribbled on Ollie, and Ollie believes he was defaced, so he went crazy and now wants to destroy all toads, which I, I, I quite enjoyed as a um, story beat underpinning the entire game but to go back to the collectibles so all these toads are folded and they take all different shapes and are hidden hidden all over the overworld of most of the zones they disappear at the very end but they're there for most of the zones and you have to find them shaking trees or hitting invisible blocks or whatever and then bash them with your hammer generally and you unfold them and they are the crowd that are in all your battles and you can throw coins at them and they help you in the battles. And the more toads there are, the better help you can get. So there, there's, there is a gameplay link to collecting the toads because the more toads you have, the you can give them coins and then it gets you through the battles quicker if you don't like the battles. So there's a bit of um, reward there. And I, I found that a lot more satisfying than finding all the holes because that, that was a bit tedious at many times. Yeah, I mean, the toads were great because not only were they little puzzly elements, but they're always funny. Like, they always had something funny to say. Yeah, all the comments they had when you bash them open and restore them to toad form, yes. Yeah, and then they would uh, end up going populate the world, like, particularly Toad Town being the primary spot for toads, funnily enough, um, as well as increase the amount of toads in the audience, uh, which uh, I think helped a little bit with, if you were using that coin system you're referring to, like paying yes. them to do stuff, they they gave you more stuff if there were more toads. So it did have a impact on the the gameplay in that sense. Just to round out the collectibles, because the last lot are, are all fairly nothing from my perspective. You have uh, you got to find every hidden block in the world. So there's a, by hidden block, I mean there are literally invisible blocks in the world, which uh, you can get some items that help you locate them during the game uh same with the toes you can get like a bell that rings whenever there's one around uh which helps you find them but you got to find all those uh, and they just give you like you know when every time you hit one like an item like a mushroom or some boots or whatever and then uh the other aspect was uh these kind of collectible figurines um which go into a, a museum in toad town they're typically just like sort of like imagine smash brothers or amiibo style sort of trophies with like characters or or elements from the game that you've seen and then when they go into the museum you would uh be able to sort of read a little bit about them or whatever there's like a uh i want to say like a bestiary but they're not beast but it's like just you know fight one of each enemy type which for the most part you will just do by playing the game there was one enemy type i don't you didn't i don't sorry i should ask did you go for 100 percent or or not with this game no i didn't i got close to 100 percent with the toads and the holes but yeah. towards the end i just wanted to finish it I, I didn't really feel compelled to do it yeah no that's fair and I'll, I'll sort of touch on why you made the right choice as well um at the end the fishing trophy uh well there's the trophies yes as well which is like they're effectively achievements, but I was going to say the bestiary was pretty easy because there's this one enemy that was like, you basically wouldn't have encountered unless you hunted it down in like the cave area. But other than that, everything was, was pretty straightforward. And then yeah, the, the trophies, including the fishing trophy and a couple of others, which were just like for doing specific 
achievement. So um, one is getting all the fish. One is like uh, doing, there's like a sort of a game show in um, Shangri Spa and sort of doing that perfectly uh, gets you a trophy. There's a boss rush mode where you have to fight all the bosses again. Uh, as well as some challenge puzzles and uh, that arena island you referred to, doing all that kind of stuff, 100% gets you these these trophies and um, badges and all this kind of stuff. But, I mean, one thing I will say, the de- game does a pretty good job at giving you a really easy-to-follow checklist. Like, you kind of know in each area what percentage you're at at any point in time. It gives you nice little bedings whenever you get all the toads or all the confetti is done or whatever it might be if you are a completionist and that's just how you play games it makes it easy to do i would say and and has a good amount of bells and whistles to like give you those dopamine hits from you know completing a checklist the menu system is quite good in that regard because you can quickly press pause and pull up it shows you every area and gives you the checklist of all what percentage of toads you've got there what percentage of holes you filled etc etc and it's quite easy to access so the it's a bit of a double-edged sword because i also found the menus quite clanky to use as well particularly when you're trying to equip items or your inventory with the hammers or boots you get because the hammers and boots go into your general inventory, but then you actually have to equip them so they take effect in battle. Other, if you if you don't remember to do that, it, it becomes quite tedious, particularly because the items you equip will be destroyed after X amount of uses. So it wasn't too bad, but it it just felt it wasn't the most streamlined system I found. Well, that that's one of my nitpicks about Origami King. Yeah. That's fair, and then I think it's also because it's different. Because like in, because Sticker Star ran on a very inventory heavy system, as well. But at least you had your inventory accessible in every fight, like get the full swing of it. And um, obviously, in the classic two Paper Mario games, you didn't need your inventory to do stuff. You primarily relied on your uh, abilities and equipped sort of upgrades i suppose um but if you did have stuff in your inventory like extra items to use again you just had all of them available to you if you if you got into a battle so yeah that that remembering like i gotta equip like these shoes and this glove of or whatever and blah 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 was um yeah it could be a, a little frustrating if you forgot to to equip it Yeah, I mean, like, I think we've done a pretty good job now of sort of giving you an overall summary of of the bits and pieces that all sort of make up the Origami King. I think probably now's a good time to start, I don't know, unless you disagree, Brendan, but like summarising the combined thoughts and feelings of the game um, as we've, you know, talked of the story and that. Or do you want to quickly touch on music first before we uh, do that? Because music is... I think a pretty important part to, to talk about with this particular game. We can talk about the music and then segue into the overall feeling of the game because I think it's interlinked in many ways because the music is one of the greatest strengths of Origami King, I'd argue. It really 
ties together all the different parts of the the story, the uh, gameplay mechanics, the narrative, the char- the characters within it, the world itself, and it's a really good score overall. I'd argue it's one of the strongest Nintendo ones for quite a long time. It's arguably my favourite one since Xenoblade Chronicles, and that's quite high praise with people who know my taste in music. I snuck in the theme track, the title theme track of Origami King in our music episode that we ran a couple of episodes ago on Blowing Cartridges. It's just, it hits all the right notes. Like, it it just has, it, it elevates the feeling of the game. It, it's whimsical. It's fun. It really feels like you're on an adventure. It does sad moments quite well. It, it's, and there's just so many tracks in there and each, so many of them really hit the right notes at the right time. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it and in part it probably does elevate my thoughts of the game as well because I think as an overall package despite its various deficiencies and its failings and areas where the game could have done a lot more it really is more than the sum of its parts I think I I really enjoy Origami King I I recommend it to a lot of people who have a Switch if they are looking for something a bit light-hearted there's a bit of a challenge there. It's it's not like Animal Crossing levels where there is no challenge, but it's just it's a nice journey to go on. It's, I, I really enjoy it. I think if you're not wedded to the idea that Paper Mario has to be a turn-based RPG, that it has to do particular things that only two games out of what there's now six games in the series that third of the games in the series has done, then well, you won't enjoy Origami King. But if you can get away from that, I think. It's a great journey that you can enjoy. I don't know what your thoughts are. I think you're probably not... You might not be as glowing as I am, but I think you enjoyed it overall. Yeah, I mean, look, as I said, I 100%ed it, which obviously says a lot, right? I don't finish a lot of games, let alone 100% them. Um, so that, I guess, speaks to the general enjoyability of playing it. It is fun. It is funny. It is charming and heartwarming at times. And I think it's worth playing. And as you said, Brendan, if you've never played a Paper Mario, so you don't have those prior expectations, I think you're just going to enjoy it. And the gripes we've mentioned are gripes that you can push through. And uh, I think a lot of the gripes, as I said, were probably accentuated for me because I did that 100%, which I just don't recommend doing, to be blunt. You get a, a little slightly different ending, but it's only very slight. And it's it's not like, you know, a, a Marvel credits sequence type ending edition you know edition that's teasing the next paper mario it's just a cute little <laughs> bonus uh watch it on youtube but yeah because because having to just do all these battles again do all this extra exploring which means you run into more enemies do more battles uh and then all that kind of stuff just really grinds your gears and i think again it accentuates the the, the niggly bits a lot in terms of them from just being like, ah, oh, this is annoying, but I'll move on to like, this is annoying because I have to do it now to to get this goal. So that's first off, don't 100% it. I think just do, you know, what you enjoy, get like all the toads, that's fun, that's enjoyable. Ignore the other stuff like the hidden blocks and whatever, um, unless you really just have nothing better to do. But despite all that, I do feel like it is is still a weaker game than the first two Paper Marios. And, and to, to be honest, I think even Super Paper Mario I enjoyed more. And it's hopefully a testament to me not just being like, I only want the original formula. I, I don't need to have the first two games created. But what I miss from 
the Paper Mario series and what I think was really good, uh, and I do want to see a return, it's just that the world is just so much more interesting <laughs> in those early two games and even Super Paper Mario. Like, I, I shouldn't need to have my Toads look different or my Goombas look different, but it is a, a massive plus to have these uniquely designed and more fleshed out looking Mario characters. And to be fair to the team that made Origami King, they did a really, really good job given they seemingly had been forced by other powers to not do any variation on the designs of the iconic Mario, you know, creatures and, and, and characters at bringing out personality. I mean, as I said, the fact that they can make bloody a stapler uh, or of, a ball of rubber bands, an interesting character and a fun character to to deal with is a testament to their skills. I'm not saying like they did a bad job. In fact, they've done a phenomenal job at uh, bringing out character via their writing. But it doesn't just change the fact to me that by, if you gave these people the free reins to really go ham and flesh out the Mario world the way the original two games did, I think it would be so much better. Because... They just felt more lived in. They felt more like real places. It was just exciting encountering characters and being like, oh, what's your deal? And like talking to them. I think that's just what I really miss. And I, I think that would be the change that I need to see to sort of, I think, have much of a chance of of a Paper Mario game exceeding uh, a Thousand Year Door or even the 64 one in my mind is to bring back that ability to create either original characters or just something that's a bit more varied and, and they get more varied worlds. Like, I think they did a pretty good job. I think, you know, having the autumn area was very cool, leading into the Japanese uh, theme park that I mentioned before. But then stuff like having a desert again, having a snowy area again, you know, like, <laughs> we have so much of that in Mario. It was so refreshing to move away from that with some of the RPG games as they were you know, previously given that freedom. So it's a good game. May, may, I won't, yeah, I won't say great, but a, re- a really good game, really fun, and you should play Or if you have a Switch, give it a shot. If you are a fan of the original two and you are looking for that, as Brendan said, you got to just throw that out the window. you just got to try and accept this for what it is. Maybe don't even think of it as a Paper Mario game, just a new Mario RPG thing, because I, I kind of feel like you can divvy up the series now until you got the original two, they're one, put them aside. Super Paper Mario is its own special Black Sheep of the Bunch, and now we've just had this new trilogy of um, of new style Paper Mario, I suppose you could call it. And of those three, this is easily the the clear winner. Uh, and shows how well the team who have worked at, you know, probably fairly consistently on all three have evolved and um, I think done a fairly stellar job with, again, just the, the seeming restrictions they've been placed upon by, by Nintendo. We kind of skipped over it, but your thoughts on the soundtrack? 10 out of 10. <laughs> um, how good is that battle theme? Like, you might not like the battles, but... Yeah, the battle theme is so catchy, and that's probably the saving grace of having to battle so much stuff, is just listening to that. But yeah, like, if you're not going to play the game, at least put the soundtrack on one afternoon when you're you're doing some chores or something, and just give it a listen, because it's uh, really good. And um, 
Yeah, I was trying to look up the composer, but I couldn't quite find them or a reliable source on the composer on um, on Google. But uh, yeah, I don't think it's like a particularly well-known one. So um, all the power to them. <laughs> oh, exactly. I, I think it is a team of, there's a few different ones that are credited. I don't know who did the main contributions. It's, it's very hard to find that these days, mm. but stellar job. I'll put the battle theme in the play out of this episode. And I, I do ultimately agree, like, despite I probably liked it a bit more than you, I think, same from what you said, even though I didn't 100% it, so maybe I'm wrong there, but I do agree with your sentiment. I think there's some things there that they could have done better, like, the world really could have used some more uniqueness, like, they do their best within the constraints, like, like the desert you mentioned, which is a bit trite at this point. Like, I did find it amusing how there's that hotel that <laughs> has been taken over by the shifties. Like, it's a toad place. They've been displaced because they've all been folded up into whatever they get folded up into, many different things. And then when you restore the toads and you progress in the story, you go back there and they're just living side by side together. Yeah. And the shifty the shifty things are like, oh, we didn't realize that toads used to live here, but like, yeah, we're here now too. Yeah. yeah. It's very funny. When you talk about music, that particular section of the game, also very uh, good DJ heavy music segments um, a couple of times, um, which is a lot of fun. But yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, it's just a shame because I, I just think this team could do wonders if given the reins to do whatever they want. And uh, I'm kind of hoping that this is like the straw that breaks the camel's back a little bit and we finally see them get given the chance to to go a bit more ham on what they can do with the world alternatively i'd also just be keen to see like more mario stuff like folded in again like i sort of mentioned how i was great going from paper mario 64 to thousand year door and then the new stuff that kind of came out of uh other mario games got folded in again piantas is just the easy rememberable example so it'd be great to see i don't know like stuff that came from super mario odyssey like the little you know, um, uh, mexican uh skull maraca dudes or new donkeyans or those robots or whatever it might be put them in like why not <laughs> like I, I just you know they're part of the mario universe now so why not allow some of that to be put into paper mario beyond just the more core enemies and and characters from the effectively like the new super mario brothers catalog of of characters Before we um, digress into talking in circles, as we sometimes do, that's yeah. probably a good place to leave it. So I think to sum it up, if you haven't played Origami King and you're interested at all and we haven't scared you off, definitely do give it a try. Listen to the soundtrack because it is a masterpiece. I- I'm very confident in saying that. And uh, if you do end up playing it, do let us know how you go. Let us know what you think about it. If you have played it and you didn't enjoy it, also let us know. But I think, ultimately, it's a game that 
if you don't like the direction of Paper Mario and this really pains you, well, I think it's probably better to just leave it and pretend it doesn't exist. <laughs> Go play Bug Fables. I hear that's a good game. Haven't played it yet, but it's on my list as well. Go play Bug Fables. Pretend that's a sequel to Paper Mario and be on your merry way because I think that's probably better better solution for you but if you're willing to go on a fun adventure that isn't a traditional rpg but has some rpg elements and has a nice touching story give origami king a go so zach if uh, people want to hound me out of town because they don't like my defense of origami king uh where can they find the podcast uh you can find us at uh pod on social media mostly twitter uh you could also Email us at blowingcartridge at gmail.com. Uh, don't try and send us paper mail that way. It won't work. I know it's a paper-themed episode, but paper is useless in this case. You can also leave reviews, uh, preferably on Apple Podcasts, but if you are on a different podcast service, I'm sure leaving good reviews there would not hurt, so please feel free to. And lastly, I guess if you wanted to reach out to one of us in particular, again, maybe that's Brendan, maybe that's me, uh, at Tamazoid for Brendan, at Eggerino for myself. Again, would love to hear your thoughts. Also happy to talk more, you know, on those social media platforms about any specific sections if you want to ask us what we thought of, you know, uh, the spa section, which was super funny or, you know, things like that. Uh, you could, you know, happy to go into more detail. Uh, with you directly there. Excellent. Well, don't blow yourself up. Leave us a five-star review. And if you don't, do what Bobby would and sacrifice yourself for the greater cause. Get more supporters for our podcast and we can continue doing episodes like this. If there's a particular game you want us to cover, do let us know as well. And uh, with that, enjoy this great piece of battle music. It's if we ever do a music episode on battle music, I'm sure this will return once again. <laughs> Almost certainly. <laughs>